Last Sunday, January 19th, a rocket exploded off the coast of Florida that was so large it registered on a weather radar nearly 60 miles away. The explosion was expected. The team launching the rocket, SpaceX, were testing to ensure the safety of passengers on the rockets if an emergency were to occur. Everything bad was supposed to happen on this launch. So they're, they're testing, uh, this is SpaceX, uh, was testing its Crew Dragon capsules abort system. That is Brendan Byrne with WMFE in Orlando. He's their resident space expert. The capsule, called Crew Dragon, is set to be the next vehicle to bring NASA astronauts up to the International Space Station. Um, this is a, a critical piece of, of hardware um, that in case there is something bad that happens mid-flight when um, humans are, are inside their capsule, uh, the capsule can actually race away from the explosion that's happening behind it. So to make sure that potential passengers would be safe, the Falcon 9 needed to explode and engage the escape function and explode, it did. It launched and about 84 seconds after launch, the system triggered for the test. Um, and that fired these eight Super Draco engines which are on the rocket, um, which goes much faster than the rocket is actually going and it pulls it away. You can actually see through uh, these really cool telescopic cameras that SpaceX had. You could see the capsule actually separating and, and flying away. Watching from the official SpaceX channel, you can see the steady stream of a rocket twisting into the sky in an arch until suddenly a ball of flame erupts from the launch and the control room erupts in cheers. Mission accomplished. Brendan tells me that NASA has tried something like this before. If you remember the Saturn V rocket, it had this uh, kind of tower on the top of it. That was the launch escape tower. Um, and what it would do is if there was an issue, it would fire and pull the capsule away, as, as opposed to pushing the way that SpaceX does. Um, it was, you know, never used um, in Apollo, and most of the time it was, it was jettisoned off. But SpaceX is leading the way for humanity back into space, and if this is going to work, everything needs to be exactly right. And even more amazingly, that is not the only goal that SpaceX is trying to achieve. Three weeks ago today, on January 6th, I threw on my flip-flops and ran to the top floor of my parking garage at 9pm. That is because of a different SpaceX launch. I was in my pajamas made up of clashing plaid prints and I was shivering from the cold, but we made it up to the roof just in time along with maybe 20 other residents of my building. I didn't know there would be so many of them, I hadn't taken the trip upstairs for a launch in a very long time. We saw a few lunar events with our neighbors, but not a launch, not in years. But there we all were, watching our clocks pointing our eyes east. From the horizon, I swear I saw a flash of orange, but believe that it was just light pollution from the suburbs around us. Then, the glow spread, infecting the cloud coverage at its back. From the curve of the Earth emerges a bolt of flickering light so small you could cover it up with the tip of a pencil. There is an illuminated field around the rocket as it rips through the sky and careens slightly northward as it completes an arch. From the roof, dozens of hushed whispers, cameras pointed skyward, eyes on the light. The fiery dot flickers higher and higher, then a quick burst and the stages separate. A tiny blip of red streaks straight downward as part of the engine returns to Earth. Another burst from the rocket as the second engine engages and a few moments later, 
It is gone from our view, passed into the darkness of the Florida night sky. We all turn to each other, smiling, and then quietly shuffle back to our own private bubbles. We've just spent five minutes together, our eyes cast to the same horizon. Not one of us had any idea what was in that rocket, what purpose it served, where it was headed. Luckily, I'm friends with a space travel expert. Starlink is going to be really cool. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see what happens with Starlink. Inside of that launch were 60 Starlink satellites. Starlink is another project by SpaceX. It's going to be made up of thousands of satellites and could provide internet at a global scale. What happens when you arm the entire world with internet? Um, you know, if you give folks access to broadband internet, what, you know, what kind of advances are we going to see in, in nations developing? Uh, that'll be a fascinating um, thing to watch and to see what happens when you give people the power of information. There are concerns, of course. The satellites are very bright, and when they fly through the night sky, astronomers catch long streaks of white light where the satellites pass. And there's going to be thousands of these satellites in the air, so much so that Brendan predicts loads of launches, nearly one every week. It'll be interesting to see if public interest wanes because there's going to be a Starlink launch every week. Um, you know, there's going to be, you know, every every 20 days or so, you know, you'll have a Starlink launch. Or are you still going to go out on your, you know, apartment roof and watch it even though, oh, we just had one last week, you know? That'll be interesting to see if we kind of get some of that um, in the public discourse. So I'll be watching it very closely. Like launch uh, fatigue. Yeah, launch fatigue. <laughs> launch fatigue. That's, that's a good. That's a good term. I was. I was trying. I was searching for that. I You're welcome. Like, I found yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Write it down. Write it down. You heard it here first. I coined the term launch fatigue. You're welcome. How did we get here? We could be seeing nearly daily launches from Florida shores to provide broadband internet to the entire world. Why us? Our shores have been one of the major connective tissues between the Earth's surface and outer space, whether that be for satellites or for human beings. And soon, very soon, human beings may be stepping off a launch pad in Florida and find themselves in the great beyond yet again. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, from Florida to the moon, why rocket launches came to Florida, and the future of space travel on the Atlantic coast. I'm joined by Brendan Byrne, host of Are We There Yet on WMFE, who spoke with me about everything rockets, missiles, space shuttles, and more. As the Second World War drew to a close, the United States military began solidifying the efforts of the missile programs that had been developing for the last few years. A month before VJ Day in August of 1945, the White Sands Proving Ground officially began operation in southern New Mexico. It was opened initially as a testing ground for the atomic bomb. When the war ended, the military continued to use the base under several programs, but especially one called Operation Paperclip. This operation worked with German expatriate scientists who agreed to develop aerospace programs with the U.S. military. The most prominent member of this operation was Werner von Braun, one of the most foundational engineers in aerospace engineering. 
von Braun invented his most famous rocket, the V-2 missile, as a weapon for Nazi Germany, but when he surrendered to the Allies, he brought his invention with him. In the years following the war, one of the primary goals of Operation Paperclip was to give the United States a critical advantage over their enemies, specifically the Soviets. We were approaching the Cold War and the space race, and we needed to be ready. The military was in need of a new launch site. The V-2 rockets were theoretically capable of traveling much further than they were able to from the White Sands location. They needed somewhere further from primary residential areas, and they needed somewhere to land, somewhere big and open that wouldn't affect human beings. Though the cities around Cape Canaveral would soon face massive population growth thanks to the rockets, they were now relatively quiet. And, of course, if a rocket needed to fall somewhere, there was always the Atlantic Ocean. On top of this, Florida also has an unusually helpful location on the planet's surface. We are the state closest to the equator. The Earth's orbit is moving at its fastest at the equator, somewhere near a thousand miles per hour, but there's more than that. So this took me a very long time to wrap my head around because I'm a, a dumb writer and not a, <laughs> not a mathematician or a physicist or anything like that. But to get to orbit, you just have to go fast enough uh, that you never fall back to Earth. So you're always falling, you're just going so fast that it doesn't matter. Um, and so, so, so the Earth is spinning, and you are just going this way, and you just never kind of fall over the edge. It took me a long time to wrap my head around it, um, and I couldn't even tell you what moment just I had that eureka moment. But basically, in order to get to this speed, rockets actually use the Earth's gravity uh, to kind of sling it into orbit. Um, so basically, the Earth is, is spinning uh, in this direction, and, and you launch with the spin. Uh, so as, as your rocket launches, you, you don't go straight up right getting to space is not about getting up it's about getting fast uh so you kind of do this pitch over and and you start to do this kind of curve where you're following the curvature of the earth but now since the earth is rotating the gravity of the earth is actually helping you uh move faster and faster and faster um and so the closer you are to the equator the more oomph you get from the earth if that is mind-boggling to you too Welcome to the club. A previous naval airbase had been situated in the area during World War II, but had been out of service since 1947. Two years later, President Truman ordered and approved the long-range proving ground, and the early days of Cape Canaveral began. Now, the Air Force could test missiles that would travel further, and on the morning of July 24, 1950, a V-2 rocket called the Bumper flew its eighth mission. It was the first ever rocket launched from Florida's shores. The whole thing lasted about two minutes. For all intents and purposes, it was not a successful launch. The V-2 was equipped with several tests that were supposed to gauge the effects of the rocket launch. It is believed that part of that broke up out of sight. In an iconic photo, the bumper emerges from a cloudburst as a handful of scientists in the foreground capture as much data as they can. The rocket was really a test to see the success of long-range ballistics for the Air Force, but the significance still stands. Florida was now a viable launching place for rockets. Four days later, they launched the ninth bumper mission from the same spot. The area was renamed the following year to the Patrick Air Force Base, which still exists in the same spot to this day. 
Over the following decade or so, more missile launches of this shape and size would be launched from the coast. Some were successes, leading the scientists towards further conclusions about their aeronautic advancements. Some were total failures, and according to Brendan Byrne, the classified quality of these missions was to their advantage, so no one had any idea about all of the failures that were occurring. You know, there's some fantastic blooper reels uh, of these, you know, rockets, you know, failing catastrophically, but hilariously, you know, when you look back at it. Um, but yeah, you you didn't want your enemy to see that. And you definitely didn't want the American public who you have to sell on this whole, you know, putting humans in space thing that, hey, we can actually figure this out. Uh, but don't look at this giant pile of debris <laughs> we have back here. The 1960s were around the corner and the newly founded National Aeronautics and Space Administration needed to define their brand. The facilities at Patrick Air Force Base were already equipped to be testing rockets. Brendan reminds me that rockets are basically just missiles with a cap on top. It's scary. It's militaristic. It's hard for a random person off the street to understand or be excited about it. If NASA was going to succeed in the space race against the USSR, the support of the public was vital. Their campaign needed to be precise and exciting, capturing the heart and imagination of young and old alike. And all great campaigns need a face. Or in NASA's case, seven faces. It's my pleasure to introduce to you, and I consider it a very real honor, gentlemen. From your right, Malcolm S. Carpenter, Leroy, Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Grissom, Walter M. Shearer, Alan B. Shepard, Donald K. Slayton. These ladies and gentlemen are the nation's Mercury astronauts. April 9th, 1959. The Mercury 7 are announced to the world. They were to be the men who participated in the new programs to launch Americans into space. The Mercury program would obviously eventually lead to the Gemini and Apollo programs. But the public image of these men had to be perfect. According to The Atlantic, NASA struck a deal with the ever-popular Life magazine to run dozens of stories about the astronauts and their issues. Life magazine was hugely popular, so they saw massive circulation. The articles weren't exactly candid profiles. They had a cultivated image for each astronaut as all-around good old American boys. They camped, they had families, they lived upstanding lives. They smile from magazine covers and sharp-cut ties with clean haircuts looking like every small-town white American man. They weren't just the first Americans in space. They were just like you. Any hint of poor behavior, partying, marital issues, and more were carved off as extraneous material. For NASA to create the public image of the brave American explorer, the men who embodied that role needed to be free from controversy. Two years later, Mercury 3 launches from the launch complex number 5 at Cape Canaveral carrying Alan Shepard into the upper atmosphere. He is the first American in space. He did not complete an orbit, but he lingered in space for about 15 and a half minutes until safely returning to Earth in the Atlantic Ocean. It's the first moment where the unknown missile launches that had been occurring on the coast connected with those superstar hotshot all-American boys. The brand was now solidified. 
Over the next few years, Canaveral became the central location for some of the most important moments in space travel history. The first manned Gemini program launched in the form of Gemini 3, making it the first two-man launch shuttle in U.S. history. Three years later, as human beings were planning to launch themselves to the moon, the first Apollo mission, Apollo 7, launched from Cape Canaveral. When Apollo 11 went to the moon, they left from Florida. In 1977, Voyager 1, a space probe that was the first craft to leave our solar system, began its journey into the depths of space from our shores. In the 1980s, after years of tests, the Space Shuttle program launches on April 12, 1981. Not only did it launch from the Kennedy Space Center, but it carried John Young, a Floridian astronaut who Brendan and I discussed last year. For 30 more years, the shuttles carry humans into space, returning Americans to and from the International Space Station. For me, the only spacecraft that I ever really knew were the shuttles. For Brendan, it inspired his entire career. It was the mid-90s. Uh, I was living in Broward County at the time, and I came up on a school field trip to go to space camp, and Discovery was on the pad. And as we were leaving, we were driving uh, back down 95, and it launched. So the bus driver pulled over, and all of us fifth graders got out, and we watched the space shuttle, and it was like a twilight launch. It was, it was gorgeous. And that kind of stuck with me. That was the trip that made me like a, a space nut, and just to see you know, Discovery launch, which we had seen on the pad just days earlier, um, was absolutely fascinating. And it's not just us. For generations, people have gathered on the shores to watch these launches. My family recalls memories of Jetty Park across the Banana River from the launch site from the south. Brendan tells me of a space fan who sits out at Spaceview Park across the Indian River west of the launches, who informs all visitors of every detail of that day's launch. It is organized now in such a way that people know exactly where to go. But if you watch back to home footage from 50 years ago, before we could watch live streams from our homes, thousands would gather in the area to see it in person. It wasn't commonplace like it has become. It was rare and wonderful and literally out of this world. So people would essentially gather themselves on the beach and live in their cars until it was time for the launch. There are people sunbathing on the hoods of their vehicles, telescopes buried in the sand, curlers in their hair as they prepare for the day. Local business owners put up signs along the roads wishing the astronauts luck, and independent vendors would sell bumper stickers for some extra cash. There were people in costumes, kids sleeping on beds set up in trunks, cars parked on the sides of roads, televisions set up in the sun. They clogged up the roads and the beaches, all to be there, to watch, to witness, to see. But it's been nine years since the space shuttle program ended, which means it's been nine years since a person returned to space from our shores. But now we're getting very close. So the launch, the launch we were talking about, that launch escape test mission from SpaceX was the last critical flight test uh, before putting humans on the capsule. So that was a very, very big step. All accounts, it looks like it was a success. They're still going through telemetry. Um, but it looks very good that SpaceX will be launching very soon. So we're close now, closer than we have been in a long time. Space has never strayed from our priorities. Part of that is our technological dependency on space, television, Wi-Fi, GPS, etc. But part of that is because it's never stopped being important to us. We aren't investors or engineers. We aren't calling the shots, but we're voting, 
we're watching, we're cheering them on. The space industry needs the public support in order to survive. The U.S. government is controlled by members of Congress, and they need to keep their constituents happy. So if you can get your constituents excited about space travel uh, and space exploration, all, this, all these developments that are happening there, you have a much easier time getting money from Congress. It's a loop. If you're excited, cooler things can happen. If cooler things happen, you're more excited. Because of all this excitement, Boeing and SpaceX were given $6 billion between the two of them to develop those launch vehicles for NASA. And at some point in the next few months, all of that work will pay off. We very well may be seeing humans launched into space from Florida's shores again, very soon. I spoke with Gilbert King a few months ago about living in Florida. He wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Devil in the Grove. We talked about how Florida has changed so much, especially during the middle part of the 20th century, the 50s and the 60s. One of the key facets he spoke on is how the rockets on the coasts changed things. It just changed our view of the world. Much of the middle of the state was so rural, farm-centric small towns with tiny populations. These towns could look to the sky as a rumble swept across the land. On the horizon, who knows how many miles away, a ball of flame would rip through the sky, piercing the night and crossing beyond humanity's reach. It is a defining facet of not only our character as a country, but our character as a state. The country could tune in when they chose, but Floridians were always face-to-face -face with potential, with the sheer power of human ingenuity, with the inevitable frontier that we were always striving to cross. For the nation, throughout history, the end goal in space travel was always progress. But for those rockets that brought us there, the journey began in Florida. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. Might I recommend some episodes similar to this one, like last July's episode about John Young with Brendan Byrne, or last May's episode with Pulitzer Prize winning author Gilbert King. That episode is called Okahumpka. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it brightens my day. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Brendan Byrne. He hosts the amazing podcast called Are We There Yet? It is also a show on WMFE. I'll let him tell you more about it. I've hosted a podcast called Are We There Yet for going on four years now. Um, and it's, I think it's a fantastic podcast because uh, I host it. Our listeners think it is too. And it's also now getting its own broadcast slot. So if you do listen in the Central Florida area, it airs on 90.7 FM in Orlando area and then 89.5 in Ocala and the Villages area every Tuesday at 630. Um, 6.30 p.m. Um, there's a conversation about space exploration, and then we have a fantastic 
segment with a great group of experts. I have two planetary scientists and a cosmologist, and we take all of your burning questions about space and we throw it to them like, what will happen if we get sucked into a black hole? Is Betelgeuse going to explode? Um, and uh, what is the speed of gravity? Uh, so those are some of the questions that we've put to them, um, and in seven minutes or less, they answer those questions. Um, it's just a really fun show, and I'm honored to be able to host it, and I'm glad that it's gotten such a great reception, um, but we could always use more listeners, so I hope people tune in. You have got to listen to this show. I listen to it every week, and it is a highlight of my podcast schedule. You can also do some additional reading about SpaceX and the history of Cape Canaveral at links in the bio below. Thanks to Lauren Nix for the artwork used on our social media channels. You can find more of her art at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Her last name, Nix, is spelled N-I-X. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below as well. Next week, I go on a foodie journey through Orlando and discover the amazing power of Main Streets. I'll see you next Monday with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good week. <laughs>